you would turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we come today to what I see as I've read through this text in Luke 17, 1 through 19, could be five marks of a normal Christian life. There's five marks of a normal Christian life. I hope you brought your Bible. I know that I'm uh, fighting a losing battle because we live in an age of phones and tablets, and that's cool and hip and all, but there's something about being able to write in the Bible, underline in the Bible, take notes in the Bible, and, and I've never once had my Bible go, ding, Facebook notification, and distract me from what God's trying to say. So I'd encourage you, bring your Bible, open your Bible, and let's look at the Bible together. And if you're one of those that's just so techno-savvy, you just can't handle the feel of paper between your fingers, we understand that. We're not going to bar the door, but I would encourage you, try the paper out every now and again if you don't do that and just see how, how it works. Luke chapter 17, uh, in my paper Bible, beginning in verse 1, says, He said to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you? Having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Verse 11, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you will. In Luke 17, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's walking along with his disciples. He's interacting with 
his disciples and their questions. And as they're walking, as we just saw, in the midst of his instructions, in the midst of his warnings, they're interrupted by a group of lepers. And through this narrative, through this teaching, through this encounter, I want us to just see five marks of a normal Christian life, four characteristics of a normal Christian life. The first one may surprise you. The first characteristic of a normal, normal Christian life is falling. It's falling. It may sound odd, but part of the Christian life is falling. Now, I know we, we clean up good on Sunday. We dress up good on Sunday. and we'll, we'll dig our Bible out of the corner possibly or off the dash. And we know who you are, dash people, because it warps in the sun. You know, we, you, you know, you pull your Bible, you put it under your arm. You come into church, you put a smile on, even though you've just chewed the kids out on the way probably. You put a smile on, you sing the songs, you take the notes, and everything looks squeaky clean. And God bless the poor guest who doesn't know better who comes in and thinks that we're all sinners. Because they walk into this place and they realize, these people aren't sinners. They're really cleaned up. They're really holy. They know the words. They've got their Bibles. These people have it all together. So this isn't the place for me. And the reality is, a very normal part of the Christian life is, aside from cleaning up on Sunday, falling We strive for perfection. We should. We should strive for blamelessness. We should strive for perfect righteousness. We should strive for perfect holiness. But we all know, and if you don't know, your spouse does, that we all fall short. And part of what sets the Christian sinner, now pay pay attention, part of what sets the Christian sinner apart from the non-Christian sinner is that Christian sinners, when we fall... We repent. And Jesus does not ignore this reality of falling, stumbling. Instead, He deals with it. And He deals with it with a, a warning, with a woe, and with a command to watch. First, there's the warning in verse 1. He said to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. You can't avoid stumbling blocks. You can buy 40 acres in the middle of nowhere, fence it 10 feet tall, block out dish network, block out the internet, grow your own food, milk your own cow, gather your own eggs, do your own thing, and the problem is you bring your nasty heart with you and you still fall. This is inevitable. That stumbling blocks come. Life is not a rose garden. It is full of stumbling blocks. And Christians may face more stumbling blocks than non-Christians. There's there's a two-fold stumbling block. The, The first side of the coin is the stumbling block of temptations. Temptations. The world is coming after you. The outside world is coming after you through media through screens, through peer pressure, through the shifts in our culture. The outside world is coming for you. And and the problem is, it's not only the outside world, but it's also the flesh is coming for you. So we've got outside pressures, and we've got inside flesh. 
inside old Adam, inside old man, the old sinner who wants to rise up more often than he should. I would give you a quote from Martin Luther, but he was known to be a little risque in his language. So I'll just kind of clean it up for you. Take the King James out of it. He would say, the old Adam is buried in baptism. But that donkey sure can swim. That's the G-rated version of Martin Luther's quote. And he can swim, can't he? We bury him in baptism. Well, I mean, we walk out of church on Sunday and we're doing our strut with our smile on. And before we get to the car, something happens. The world hits us. The flesh reacts. We fall into temptation. We fall into sin. We've got the world against us. The flesh against us. The devil is against us and all of his schemes. That's one side of the coin, these temptations. The other side of the coin is the tests and the trials that come in the Christian life. And this should be no surprise to us either. The book of James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look at that verse. James is saying, consider it joy when trials and tests comes your way. Jesus says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And James says, rejoice at every stumbling block you face. Because when you see the stumbling block, the test, the trial for what it is, your faith is developed. Most of you know that I have a good friend um, who was a missionary in Turkey who had to come home a little less than a year ago because of cancer. And you, many of you gave a lot of money um, to help with their medical bills and the expenses of that. And he messaged me Friday evening. I was at a wedding rehearsal. And um, he messaged me in that wedding rehearsal and said, I just had a scan. Lungs are full. My left lung is collapsed. My right lung is going to collapse, going on hospice Monday. And someone generously uh, offered to pay for a plane ticket for me to go see him and did the math and the timing and just got a car and drove nine and a half hours Wednesday to go and encourage my brother who's now in hospice. Drove back nine and a half hours Thursday having been encouraged by him. Isn't that odd? I I feel pretty sure I didn't encourage him. And if I did, I didn't encourage him as he encouraged me because through it all, he smiles. Through it all, he laughs, even though he has to say, turn oxygen up to his wife. He's laughing. He's, He's putting his trust and his faith in God, and he has more joy in dying and many of us, myself included, in living. Their little boy was born two weeks before he found out he had cancer. His fifth child is born two weeks before he found out he had cancer. You know what his name is? James. 
Emily said while we were sitting there Wednesday night, she said, we did not know how fitting a name James would be. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials and temptations. These things are inevitable, and they do not dodge Christians, regardless of what Joel Osteen and the TBN crowd tells you, that, you know, if you just follow Jesus, you're going to have your best life. Now, that is, there's a Greek word for that. It's baloney. And it's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. To tell someone, follow Jesus, you're going to have your best life now. His best life, now 36 years old with lungs filled with tumors and, and about to pass on from your wife and your five little children. Is that your best life now? No, but you know what Joel could say? He said, if what we believe is true, if what we believe is true, I'm ready to check out of here. If your best life is now, you can't say that about the life to come. Talk about a pitiful title for a book, by the way. Somebody should have flagged that. If your best life is now, you don't have that to look for. My best life is yet to come. So we can count it all joy. These things are inevitable. And Jesus says up front, stumbling blocks are going to be present. There's going to be temptations. And there's going to be trials. The Christian life is not a bed of roses. So if you walked in this morning off the street, this is your first time here, and you think, I'm going to go to church, and everything's just going to fall into place, and it's going to be wonderful from here on out. I hated to burst your bubble, but I have to tell you the truth. Jesus gives us a warning that stumbling blocks will come. Secondly, he gives us a woe in the latter part of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, but woe, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now we have the warning. Trials and tests and temptations will come. But now we have a woe. Woe to the one through whom they come. If you have anything to do with causing the trial and test of your brothers and sisters, if you have anything to do with the temptation of your brothers and sisters in Christ, woe to you. And that word woe is a word that is meant to denounce someone. It's not a positive, in case you didn't pick that up. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18, and I want you to just mark that passage because we're going to go back and forth to it because it's the parallel passage to Luke 17 in Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to learn a little more about what Jesus is saying and meaning by going to Matthew 18. Pop quiz question again, what's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible, right. So we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 5. Jesus says the same thing here in Matthew 18 chapter 5. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of of the sea, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Mark Matthew 18, we're going to come back there in just a moment. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is clear. Woe to the one through whom these temptations come. Don't be the one who leads others astray, especially these little ones. These little ones can refer to Physical little ones, 
children, and it can refer to spiritual little ones, spiritual children, spiritual babes who are still on the milk and immature and not able to discern right from wrong well yet. Don't don't be the one who leads others astray, especially little ones, by being the source of unnecessary test trials or temptations to sin, or Jesus himself will denounce you. He'll pronounce woe upon you. Let me tell you a story about a young man who grew up. True story. True story about a young man who grew up to parents who loved the Lord, who followed the Lord, who had a great reputation in the community, a great reputation in the church, who raised him and his siblings in the fear and the admonition of the Lord to the best of their ability, who grew to young adulthood and walked away from the faith. Now, why did he walk away from the faith? Well, in his own words, because now, by God's grace, he's come back to the faith and he is following Christ, loving Christ, and leading his family to follow Christ. But the reason he gave for walking away from the faith, this is from his lips, not mine, He said, my Sunday school teacher was also my science teacher at school. And my science teacher at school told me that everything happened by chance through a process called evolution over millions and millions of years. And then he would sit in my Sunday school class and open the Bible and teach from that. And both of those things can't be right. So we don't have Mr. Nasty Hollywood actor out there leading this person astray. We have Mr. Sunday school teacher. And you know what Jesus says about such Sunday school teachers and such science teachers? I'm just going to put it out there. What Jesus says about such science teachers, even who claim to be Christian, is woe upon you. Woe upon you if you call yourself Christian and you do not have the backbone to stand up in your classroom, and say, I know what your textbook says, but my pastor said there's a Greek word for that, and it is what? Baloney. And my Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and was void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God Himself hovered over the face of the waters. And God spoke, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God spoke, and you were fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. And God came to this earth to give His life, not for some goo, that evolved into the zoo and into you, but He came to give His life for people made in His image. Woe upon that person who would lead one of these little ones astray, regardless of their excuses and justifications. Jesus Christ said, it would be better for you to lose your job. No, it would be better for you for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into the sea and drown than to lead a little one to stumble. So we got the warnings. Stumbling blocks are coming. We've got the woes. And then we have a command to watch. 
He says in verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is, this is good. Be warned. You can easily fall into temptations, trials, and tests. So be sure. Be sure that you're not one that would cause someone else to fall into temptations, trials, and tests. And in the meantime, you be on guard. Because you are subject to temptations, trials, and tests. You be on guard for yourself. Be on your guard. And then, not only... Mind your business, but mind your brother and sister's business too. Be on guard for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How many of you know we can all have blind spots? And if I knew all my blind spots, I would deal with them, right? That's why they're called blind spots, because we don't know we have them. So we need to watch ourselves. We need to watch each other. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that's a key word there, you who are spiritual, not nosy Nancy or busybody Bob, but you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then each one looking to yourself. So that you too will not be tempted. So there, Paul says the same thing Jesus says. Jesus says, watch out for yourself, watch out for your brother. Paul says, watch out for your brother, spiritual people. Rebuke him in a spirit of gentleness, but you better watch out for yourself too, because you can fall. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus, again, this is a parallel passage. Jesus gives us more information on what this looks like in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault on Facebook. Wait, I'm sorry. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in a blog where you are passively, aggressively attacking him. Oh, that's our culture. The Bible says, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, in other words, a lost person. So here's what Jesus is saying. If your brother sins, this is, well, I just don't like the way they're dressed. I don't like the way they do their hair. I just don't like their personality. There's a term you need to learn. It's called EGR. You heard that term before? Has anybody heard of an EGR? Anybody? Okay, we got a couple. Extra grace required. That's a good word, good, good little trilogy for your vocabulary there. There are people who love Jesus and that Jesus loves and died for, who just need extra grace because you can put them in a reform camp and they're not going to change. They're going to be abrasive. They're going to have a personality that rubs you the wrong way. And we just need to exercise grace, extra grace required. And when you see them coming, you know what you do? You say, 
that's an EGR. So I don't even have to get all upset over it. I know I'm going to need to show extra grace. It's just their personality. It's just the way they are. And if you're laughing, well, I just don't know anybody like that in my life. Well, that's you. Okay? So you're the EGR. Now you know, and now you can respond appropriately. But, but we're not talking about personality issues. I just don't like. This person is caught in sin. They have sinned. Do you see that word sin? And you go to them in private and say, Brother, sister, I see you've fallen into sin. And I want to call you to repentance. And what does Jesus say? If they repent, you've won your brother or sister. If they don't, do you just say, well, I guess they're just going to do their thing. No, you take a couple of other people that you know, that they know, that love them, that they know love them. And you go to them. And with a spirit of gentleness, you say, listen, we are seeing this pattern in your life. And we want you, we want you to repent. We want you to come back to Christ. We don't want you to go the wrong way. And then if they just still refuse to repent, what is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the boss of the church, say to do? He says, tell the whole church. Why do we tell the whole church? So that we can put them over here in this little corner with Pete. Sorry, Pete. They put him over in this corner. <laughs> put him over in this corner and say, you've got to sit over here by yourself and we're going to treat you like naughty Pete over there. No, that's not why. You go, the whole church goes and says, brother, everybody's just knocking on their door and calling them and ministering to them and, and encouraging This isn't discipline, like church discipline. This is redemptive. We're trying to bring you to Christ, bring you back to Christ and keep you from slippering, slipping down the slippery slope into worse sin. We want to bring you back to Jesus. And if they just turn everybody off, you know what Jesus says? That person has given you evidence that as far as you can tell, this side of glory, they are not even a Christian. Why? Because what sets Christian sinners apart from non-Christian sinners Christian sinners fall and repent. And if we fall and won't repent, that gives evidence that we are not even a Christian. And look at the grace of Jesus. Just a side note. It's not just one person. He says, take a couple more. And it's not just a couple more. He says, just tell the whole church body just to go to them and, and call them back. You see the grace there and the mercy there, the patience there that Jesus gives Wow, I have five marks of a normal Christian life. I've made it through one. So sit back if you need to stretch. I'm kidding. We're going to have to stop at some point, but not yet. One more. Christian normal, one mark of a normal Christian life is falling. So Jesus gives us a warning that it's inevitable. Trials, tests, tribulations, temptations are coming. He gives us a woe. Don't you be accused of being the one. To cause it, and he gives us a warning to watch, a command to watch ourselves and out for each other. Then, secondly, this kind of leads into the second mark of a normal Christian life, and it's forgiving. Forgiving. In verse 4, he says, If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Say, What? If he sins against you seven times in one day and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus is demanding generous forgiveness and a mark of a normal Christian life is a life of forgiveness. And notice what is odd about this is this person who has sinned seven times against you in one day doesn't have to prove anything to you to get forgiveness. He doesn't have to prove himself. He just needs to say, I repent. You know, what we want to do is we want to say, well, you, your sin 
against me on a scale of 1 to 10 is about a 7. Now you've said you repent, and I'm going to need about a 7 on the regaining of trust before I forgive you. I'm going to need about a 7 on the fruits of your repentance before I forgive you. I'm going to need about a 7 return so I know that I can really forgive you and, and feel good about that. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if they repent, you forgive. Now that doesn't mean the preacher... This is not a true story, by the way. The preacher gets caught up in adultery, and he stands before the church and says, well, I'm sorry, and they say, oh, I forgive you. We'll see you next Sunday. No, 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 no. There's forgiveness, and then there's restoration to a position of leadership. Those are two separate things, so don't get that mixed up in your mind and think, well, I know, brother, so-and-so, you know, was just scandalous, but he said he's sorry. No, we can forgive without restoring to leadership. So don't mix those two up. Are you with me? There does need to be trust regained. There does need to be work done, bridges rebuilt, before anyone makes any move back in that direction if they've fallen into grievous sin. But forgiveness should come upon repentance. When he says, I repent, you forgive. Nothing more, nothing less. And what happens if he turns on you again? Up to seven times a day, you forgive. It's generous forgiving. We know that Jesus didn't just mean seven times, right? Seven sounds pretty severe, but we know he didn't just mean seven times. But the number seven represents spiritual perfection. So when Jesus says seven, he means perfectly, completely. Not just seven times, but give perfect, generous, complete Forgiveness, and if you don't believe that, go back with me to Matthew chapter 18, one more time, and verse 21. Because Peter is like some of you. You hear that and you go, forgive? Forgive folks that have sinned against me. And Peter says in Matthew 18, verse 21, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Give me a number. I mean, I'm already out of patience, a bit frustrated. I've already got a short fuse, Lord. How many times I got to do this? To check my boxes and be approved of you. Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So what Jesus is making very clear is he's not giving us a number. He's saying generous, complete, perfect forgiveness. And then he tells us a story. To help drive that home. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Probably for the vast majority of us, 10,000 talents means absolutely nothing to us. It's going to be unbelievable when I tell you what 10,000 talents equals. This man owes the king 10,000 talents. A talent, a talent was worth 15 years wages. So you take your average salary, multiply it times 15, and that is one talent. And this man owes the king 
10,000 talents. It would take him 150,000 years of working to pay back his debt. Now do you have a picture? Verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay, do tell. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. 150,000 years of salary. I'll just, I'll just let you go. I'll just wipe it out. I'll just erase the debt. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that denarii probably means about as much to you as the talent did. So I'm going to tell you what a denarius was. A denarius was a day's wages. One day. And this man owes his master a hundred denarii. So we're looking at three months, a little more than three months work. And what does he do? He seized him, the latter part of verse 28. He began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed three months' salary. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came, and you're deeply grieved right now too. You're going, what kind of knucklehead is this that would do such a thing after experiencing such a thing? And they were grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, 150,000 years worth of debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I have mercy on you, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. In other words, he's going to be tortured for 150,000 years. And then Jesus says in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your Lips? No, no, the heart. From your heart is what it says, right? Generous forgiveness? Generous forgiveness looks like someone sinning against you 150,000 times. And you being so released to God that you just let it go and you forgive. That's supernatural. But as, as disgusted as we are with this man who treated his friend this way, think about this. God, God, holy, righteous, pure, and holy, sinless God stepped out of eternity in the person of Jesus Christ and came to this earth and walked these streets. Suffered poverty Suffered pain, suffered sorrow, and yet lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. The life God demands and requires of us. And then He went to the cross, and on the cross He took upon Himself our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions. And God the Father judged out, judged our sin in Christ on the cross in 
full. And full. How much sin you got? How much sin do you have? I, I would venture to say, if we sat down in a counseling session and just really hashed it out, we would fill up a notebook just this week. Let's talk about what you've done that you shouldn't have done. Let's talk about what you've said that you shouldn't have said. Let's talk about what you should have done that you didn't do. Let's talk about how you spent your money. What you let into your home through that television screen. What you let into your home through that computer screen, that phone screen. Let's talk about the motives that you have for doing the good things that you did that other people applaud you for. Let's just go all the way down the line and nitpick your life together because have no fear, Jesus says... Not one idle word that we utter will be forgotten. He knows it all. I'm going to say just this week, I'm filling up a three-ring three binder. Me. And I haven't even got, got back to March yet. And then I have the audacity to try to hold something over your head. I mean, me sinning against God, you know, that's understandable. We all do that. He understands. He's going to forgive it. But you sinning against me, that, that, that is a little too much. And I'm going to tell you, this guy's unforgiveness of three months' wages after being forgiven 150,000 years of wages pales, pales in comparison to what we owe God. It pales in comparison. And that is why the true, normal Christian life is marked not only with falling, but with forgiving. And there's three more. But the normal Christian life is also characterized with mercy. You can make checks payable to Kevin Ivey. We'll cover the next three next week. But isn't that really just humbling? Isn't it true? Isn't it true that we all fall flat of our face every five minutes, if not more? And we need to watch. We need to be careful that we don't lead others astray. We need to be aware and warned. And we need to be some forgiving people. So let's be characterized by falling and repenting. And by forgiving those who sin against us. Because that is what Christ did for us. Do you know him? You're not going to, listen, don't walk out here and go, okay, I got two things I'm going to try to do this week to be a good Christian. I'm going to not fall or lead anybody else to fall, and I'm going to be more forgiving. Don't do that. That's not Christianity. You're not making a list and trying to check it twice and fulfill it. No, if you're a Christian and God has done a work in your life, he does the work in you. And he enables you to be forgiving and he enables you to walk through the stumbling blocks of this earth as a Christian. So, so don't try to fix it. Come to Jesus this morning. Let him fix it. Do you know him? Has he transformed your life? Does his Holy Spirit dwell within you? Has he made you a new creation? If he's not made you a new creation, there's nothing more he can do for you that has not already been done. He's come to this earth and he lived the life God demands of you and requires of you. He checked every box for you. He checked every box for you. So you don't have to check any boxes. They've been checked. And then he paid the price for your sin in full, completely. Paid it. You don't have to pay for any sin. It's all paid for. You're not doing penance. It's paid for. 
the checklist is checked. The debt has been paid. Jesus, Jesus has done it all. And He comes to you this morning and He just calls upon you to turn away, to change your mind about your self and your life. Turn away from all that that you've been caught up in and turn to God through faith in Him this morning. Have you done that? Have you experienced that transformation? Have you been made a new creation? Would you bow with me? Just with every head bowed, every eye closed, Miss Lisa's going to play softly for just a minute. I want to ask you where you are to pray and to ask God to show you, show you where you stand with Him. Have you been made a new creation? Have you repented of your sins? And are you repenting? of your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Is He making you like Him? Is He changing your life and transforming your life into His image? If not, right where you are right now, you can call upon His name in repentance and in faith. And you can call upon His name and He will save. He will forgive He will put His Spirit within you. And maybe this morning you know Christ, but you've been struggling to forgive someone. You have struggled with a grudge. You've struggled with a hard heart. And listen, sometimes sometimes the Holy Spirit has to work on us a while and bring us through some things for us to forgive from the heart. And that's okay. Is God working forgiveness in your life? If not, if it's just bitter root... You need to forgive this morning. Are you one that is leading someone to sin? To fall, to stumble some way? Young person, old person, middle of the road person. Are you leading a little one to fall and to stumble into sin? If so, listen, we need to repent of our, repent of our unforgiveness. We re, need to repent of our failures to represent Christ well. And He will forgive. Let me pray for you. Father, for those that may not know you here, I pray that you would grant them true repentance and true faith and true transformation. Give them your Holy Spirit and the assurance of your Spirit. God, for those of us who know you, who may have folks to forgive and struggle to forgive and maybe going through a difficult time, and I pray that you would help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. I pray... God, that you would help us to be on guard against those stumbling blocks. That we wouldn't become a stumbling block. And that we would help each other and hold each other up. And we would be real, normal Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if God has spoken to you,